Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Today, we have Russ Yusupov on the podcast. Russ is one of the most creative people I know. He is probably most well-known as the creator of Vine, the sensation video upload app that inspired TikTok in a lot of ways. He also created HQ Trivia and an amazing creative studio called Big Human, among many other things. Hey. <laughs> Welcome you. to the show, Russ. We're going to use this, this show as a chance to sort of explore your ideas, your story, where you see things are going, and hopefully to inspire uh, young creatives and, and folks who are at the early parts of their journey in, in getting started. Awesome. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Joe. I think it's also important to mention that we're friends. We go way back True. in the New York tech circles. Yeah. And we often find ourselves in deep playa at Bernie Man. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I also love all the work you do, man. So it's Thank great you. to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Russ and I met over a decade ago, I think. And we pretty quickly thereafter went to Burning Man for the first time, or is my first time going to Burning Man? It was yours? I think it was my second or yeah. third. And we shared an RV or, <laughs> or we sh yeah, we were in the same little cluster. Love to get into that yeah. amongst many other topics. Cool. So what's on your mind? Well, this is your podcast. So I'm going to ask it to you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, it's a beautiful day in Brooklyn. Let's see what's, what's going on. I've, I've been seeing a lot about AI and generative media, which is really interesting to me. And we had a great conversation before we flipped the record button about that. Yeah, I'm just excited. I'm excited about everything that's going on. Mm. The pandemic isn't officially over, but it feels yeah. like it is. And there's just so much new momentum in the industry in which we work, in technology and startups and so on. Maybe you see it the same way. I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like the pandemic was such a wild moment for the globe. Like it was not just an event, it was a two-year event, right? Like if the pandemic happened for one day, it would be catastrophic and like have generational impact. But the fact that it happened for two years and the impact of it was for two years, I feel like we're only just getting started to see what comes out of it. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of businesses emerge during the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of them have since disappeared. But I think the successful ones are the ones that have had truly meaningful impact on the way that people do things right. every day, whether it's communicate or collaborate. Zoom had an astronomical rise during the pandemic. Mm. And then since its stock price has mm. pretty much cratered. But I still think that it's an incredibly valuable tool. Totally. And I don't know if you struggle with this, but sometimes the best ideas are not necessarily the best businesses mm -hmm. or are timed perfectly mm -hmm. to the market. Like I, I don't think remote or tele collaboration is going anywhere. I agree. And 
it's only going to get more immersive, right? So I've dealt with this a lot through my companies. And I see that with the universe, with the tool that you're building, you've been able to adapt pretty well to, to some of these market changes and market fluctuations. Yeah. And it's something we were talking about before we started recording, just around your ability to pivot. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear more about what you're working on and I could tell you what, <laughs> tell you about what I'm working on and hopefully folks that are listening can derive some benefit from yeah. it. Well, why don't we start by, how would you describe yourself? Who are you? <laughs> 38 male. <laughs> I live in New York, yeah. which I think pinpoints me <laughs> pretty narrowly. I love art. I love design. I love nature. And I love technology. And I love what technology can do for the world and what it has done for the world. So I guess a simple way to describe me is a uh, was an artist who's still kind of finding their voice. Mm. When did you learn that about yourself? Like, when did you learn that you were an artist? So I've been painting and drawing since I was a little kid. And it was the one thing that I was able to both find immense joy and pleasure with as an individual, mm. but also I got tons of validation from my teachers, my family, my friends. Right. I was known as the kid who can draw in class and I was always the one sitting on the halls of school drawing posters mm -hmm. for the plays and so on. And design kind of came naturally to me from that practice. At a certain point in high school, I realized that I can show my art online by building a website. Mm -hmm. And uh, around the same time, I also learned that I could create art on the computer using 3D Studio mm -hmm. Max or Maya, Photoshop, and some of these other tools. So it started pretty early. Hmm. And you didn't come from like a family of artists? No, not at all. My dad was a, a shoemaker, my mom a medical assistant, mm -hmm. and didn't have much art around the home or yeah. see lots of museum exhibits or books about art. But I did watch Bob Ross hmm. on TV, yeah. Channel 13, every day after school, Mark Kistler's Imagination Station. These are, hmm. these are TV shows that were on New York public TV in the 90s. Even like the really kitschy, like Martha Stewart watercolor painting, yeah. you know, in your dining room kind of shows. Yeah. And yeah, my influences are really rooted in just being like a New York kid. Hmm interested in art. And then how did you find computers? So like I said, it, it really came from this desire to show my work mm. online. Right. My parents bought a computer when I was like 13, 14. It's a PC, got a CompUSA on Queens Boulevard in Queens. And yeah, AOL then just discovered different message boards and tapped into some communities online that were about creativity, people mm -hmm. learning how to use the creative tools and creating tutorials for each other and posting up their work on their own websites with yeah. their funky aliases. I had my own alias and my own websites that I managed. Mm -hmm. So computers for me have always been a place 
where I could both practice and show off my art. Right. And then I got into some more controversial online behaviors around the same time, like freaking, creating apps to hack the the telephone systems, mm. creating hacks for AOL, downloading pirated yeah. media content, that kind of thing. As an immigrant kid in New York, you know, like discovering that there's this vast place where you can kind of manipulate for yeah. your benefit was actually kind of exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's it, there's like a subversiveness that, you know, you get with art too, right? Like, but the whole internet's like a canvas in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, I look through things through the lens of an artist. I'm, I'm a trained artist, went to LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. I went to the School of Visual Arts. So for me, the life and role of an artist is pretty meaningful thing. So I believe that art is anything that you can get away with. Mm. And the internet is just such a rich landscape and canvas for, it's like playing pranks on systems. Mm. <laughs> I love the framing of art as anything you can get away with. That's so cool. Because for me, I, I often think about the work I do as a form of art. And yeah, but you say, oh, well, it's a business, it's that. And it is. But I see business as a canvas. I see technology as a canvas. As much as I see graphic design and and the graphic arts and, and visual arts as a, as a canvas. And I think that people often confuse the media, the medium for the practice, for the, the, the soul of the work. And I think what you're saying is, is that, right? It's like, yeah, it depends on which kind of canvas you want to work on. Absolutely. And that's one thing that's always drawn me to universe mm. since the founding of it. And just want to say I am an investor in universe. I'm a one huge the, supporter. One of the first investors. Yeah. One of the first before I think you even had yeah. a product. Yeah. I believed in you and I believed in the vision. Thank you. Yeah, I think like what really captivated me was your vision around the web as a creative medium mm. and enabling people to to create for the web mm. much more easily. And this was way before the no code thing totally. and the generative AI thing came to be. So you got it right. And it just goes to show that thinking about things like an artist mm. and thinking about things in terms of systems and the implications of systems and that you can hack systems mm. can really produce interesting results. Totally. You know, I think in the tech world, historically, most products or projects were built originally by engineers, people who write code or have a math and science background. And that makes sense, given that the technology started in a very abstract way, in a way that was very removed from the human layer. It starts with the machine as opposed to with the human. But as the technology has gotten more sophisticated and closer to the human, more integrated in our lives, a lot of the interesting parts of technology are at that design layer and not at the brute force, like how do you make it work layer. So I think a lot of the, I think we're actually living in a moment where design is the most innovative layer of the internet and software because it's possible. It's, it's The question is, what do you want to do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about the phone, it's this unbelievable supercomputer that's in everyone's pockets, connected to the internet. And there's no 
hardware on the face of the phone. It's just a piece of glass. It could render anything that, that you have in yeah. your imagination. And so that canvas is really our opportunity as like product designers in that world to create new interfaces and new ideas for how you can use the technology. Yeah. Yeah. These are just black mirrors that we rub mm. to summon different experiences for ourselves. Right. And I think there's so much more to be done. I think right. we're in like the third or the fourth inning yeah. when it comes to smartphone yeah. applications. And I am getting more inspired by what's possible with generative AI. Mm. And I think long-term humans are not going to be that easy to replace mm -hmm. when it comes to certain things. And I think it's our ability to craft experience, mm. to author experiences, and to weave stories mm. around, around these experiences. And I could be proven wrong, you know, let's check back in in a year. But I think designing interfaces is very similar to like directing a movie mm. or creating a, a roller coaster ride or a theme park ride where waiting in line is kind of right. like downloading the app or typing the website. You get checked in. That's mm. kind of like the onboarding and roller coaster ride designers take and theme park designers take all this into consideration like what is what does the line look like from far away right. you know is it twisting to you know make it appear shorter and what's the lighting what is the the set design coming into the experience and then you get on the ride mm. and you're just in the hands of the designers that put this thing together mm. for you and i like to think about creating these like zero to one ideas and interfaces mm -hmm. in that way down to asking my friends to use things that I build mm -hmm. and then just watching. Right. And like if their harness isn't strapped in and if their arm hits against the tunnel of the roller coaster ride, I better catch it right. and fix that mm -hmm. part until the experience is just like buttery smooth. Mm -hmm. So all of the pieces of the technology come in to play in concert with each other. The example I'll give is with HQ Trivia. Mm. With HQ, we weave together so many elements. There was the video streaming, the mobile game layer, the host on the screen, the background, the sound effects, the questions, the graphics that played in between segments. All of these pieces, like the haptic engine, all of these things had to work together. Yeah. And there were very few people at the company that could actually see the composite view or feel the composite mm. experience. And I think this is just so incredibly important because, I mean, this is an insight that I had, you and I talk about this all the time, you know, inspired by psychedelics. Like mm. what have psychedelics done for us as mm -hmm. builders and founders and entrepreneurs? To me, it's given me the ability to kind of hyper-tune and hyper-focus and orient to the user and the user experience, which is a synthesis of our combined sensory inputs, mm. vision, smell, taste, feel, you know, all these things. Like in German, I think it's called the Umbelt. Right. Every animal has its yes. own stack of sensory inputs that give it its perception of reality. Right, a dog with its incredibly long snout pretty much 
experiences the world through its nose. Whereas humans, because our brains are so evolved and complex, it all kind of comes in through the optic nerve yeah. and gets processed there. So we're thinking, feeling machines and the things that we use every day, especially our phones, have an incredible impact on our perception of reality right. and psychology. Like for some Vine users, their whole life was about Vine. They spent hours watching videos. Some of them spent days creating videos and anything they saw as feedback became part of how their brain worked and what they thought was true about life. Mm. So we do have an incredible responsibility as designers to know and understand how the things we do impact hmm. people's psychology. Totally. There's so many things there. I mean, I think I've often thought about the internet and the products that we design on the internet as like architecture, right? We're, we're building virtual architecture, digital architecture. And if you think about the impact that physical architecture has on us, it's immense, right? Like the the feeling of a place inspires so much in us, but also the function of a place, right? Like, and I think that architecture is a field of study that's been around for hundreds, thousands of years. We can go look at ancient texts from the Greeks about how they built structures and thought about it. We don't have that for building digital interfaces, but I think that in some ways it's even more important to shaping our worldviews. How do you think about, I'm curious, so you mentioned psychedelics there. How has that affected this aspect of, of how you think? So it's made me, and I would say it's just a handful of psychedelic experiences that have given me these insights, if you will. You know, I'm not a regular microdoser. I'm not an acid head. I might fit a lot of stereotypes, but that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not one of them. Yeah. I feel like I've I've learned as much as I need to learn through psychedelics mm. at this stage of my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll participate more when I'm like in my 60s or mm. 70s. But what it has taught me is that the world's problems are systems problems. Mm. And the way to solve systems problems is building new systems or tweaking the existing systems. So I like to now think about problems at a more macro level. And I think psychedelics or psychedelia translates or the etymology is something like mind manifest or like the expanding mind. And a lot of design is just invention, hmm. right? And this connection between inventing reality and inventing interfaces that can then influence mm. reality. I think are there's kind of a, an interesting interplay there mm. between the two. What problems are you thinking about these days? So I'm a globalist mm. at heart. I think I'm not really seeing that I'm not like, I think inequality is a big problem mm -hmm. around the world. I think access to information is is a problem around the world. But I'm like I'm like little old me, right? I'm mm -hmm. I'm a designer and entrepreneur living in New York. I'm constantly experimenting with different apps and different tools. And I perceive them as toys, as just like little fun hacks on experience. Sometimes the toys because of the benefit of like exponential technology 
can mm-hmm. grow and improve and be refined to become something bigger than just a toy, you know, they go on to make some kind of lasting impact. So I can't say that I'm like effectively changing the world with an app, mm. you know, the way maybe the work of some of the top philanthropists mm. and like really smart people are. <laughs> but to me, I think if if my work can influence another designer's work and they could build on what I build, then that's that's really like really great yeah. healthy competition. Yeah, I mean, I think your work inspired me before I even met you because I I used Vine back in the day and the interface at the time was so clever. It was a square viewport and you had seven seconds to record and you put your thumb on the viewport and started recording. And as soon as you picked your thumb up, it would stop. So what you could then do is get another shot immediately by hitting your thumb on it. So you could actually compose a scene that had many different cuts, many different angles, many different ideas in seven seconds. And there was really no UI on the screen. It was just a viewport with your thumb and a status sort of bar. And I was like, fuck, this is so cool. Like it really opened my mind to what you could what you could do with tools. Absolutely. You know, we actually copied huh. someone. Who did you copy? So uh, another artist and designer, I knew at the time, Dan, Daniel Savage, not to mm. be confused with the writer. Daniel Savage is an illustrator, lived mm. in Brooklyn at the time. He created an app called Gift Shop. Mm. I think it was summer of 2012, just when he put it out. And my co-founder at Vine, Dom and I, we were working out of the big human offices and we were experimenting with different mm. video apps. And we were working on something called Pillar, which is a, an app for televisions. And we got funding for it through our RRE Ventures and Adam Ludwin. And, you know, I brought Gift Shop into a into hmm. a meeting. I said, hey guys, like look at this. Gift Shop is so clever. It launched into the camera and you could tap on the camera image to capture a frame for a hmm. GIF. And you could continue capturing frames until you were happy with what you got and it would create a looping hmm. GIF. And I thought it was just so clever and easy. And we immediately started thinking, okay, like, how do we make this better? What if we captured frames for a video while your finger was held on the screen with sound? I was like, okay, like, stop everything else we're doing. Let's just do that. And Dom went to his desk and started coding the first prototype for Vine. So... This is what I mean about designers building off right. of each other's work. We improved the experience. Yeah. We took it from just a, a very quiet frame-by-frame animation to a more immersive format. Yeah. Right? Something that really engaged people, engaged users. So, like, if you, if you say, okay, well, it's like, here's Joe. He's level eight LSD trip. And he was looking at a stream mm. of GIFs. And then you gave him a stream of looping videos, which would he be more immersed by? Hmm. Which would his brain be more subsumed by? Uh, Right? Yeah. So that's how Vine was born. It was really just an evolution of something existing in the world. And that's what's exciting to me about, you know, the free and open market and competition. 
So people often ask me, well, didn't TikTok just like steal Vine's yeah. MO and, and TikTok is just Vine? I'm like, no, actually. TikTok is much better than Vine ever was, hmm. right? In the sense that they built on what we did. So, and and we didn't like we just built the wrong features on Vine. We didn't build the right stuff at all. And we probably could have built the right features with half the team we right. had. To me, I think the one thing we missed out with Vine were like these lip sync videos. And there was an app called Mindy, created by a small team of engineers from France. Um, Mindy created this really clever capture tool. It allowed you to record a video in fast mo and slow mo. And what this allowed you to do was actually sync music to your movements and it played back the music during record like one millisecond mm -hmm. at a time. So you could actually synchronize your movements, your lips or your body to music. And I don't know if you remember, there was this period in like 2014, 15, 2016, when there were all these like funny animated looking like lip sync and dance videos on the internet. Yeah. Like musically was like yeah, really yeah. big with that. It turns out that's what people wanted to make. That's what the youth mm. wanted to make. Mm. They loved pop music. They wanted to capture the essence of a music track and, um, you know, get credit for that mm. creativity in some way through their performance. And Mindy made it really easy to make it look like you're actually singing and right. dancing in sync to the stuff. We just didn't think that was important at Vine. We thought we were just super cocky. We're like, oh, that's, that's for like teenagers. That's not real art. That's not real creativity. Mm. And we loved everything we saw on Vine with all the great creators that emerged there. They created characters. They were, they were like, I like to think about it as like folk right. art, right? People were expressing daily life in using humor and comedy and music and creativity. But there was this other thing going on and right. we totally missed it. Hmm. And now Elon wants to bring Vine back. Um, and I think it's just going to do very well. You think so? Absolutely, yeah. And what do you think bringing Vine back would mean? Do you think it's the original Vine or do you think it's a TikTok version of it? Well, the question is like, who would Vine compete with? Hmm. I think competing with TikTok is going to be really difficult, but competing with YouTube, right? maybe not as difficult. I think there's a path towards competing with the longer form market for video. And... There needs to be just a massive cultural shift if the TikTok use case were to appear on Vine. And what do I mean by the TikTok use, use case? It's just youth culture, hmm. right? And I think when you ask millennials, and I'm not sure the, the kind of makeup of, you, of the audience listening to us now is, I presume, maybe like all over, but maybe millennials mostly. Yeah, Gen Z millennials. Gen Z millennials. I think there's a huge divide in the taste profile of these two groups. And I think Twitter will just reject anything TikTok. 
Because <laughs> right. because TikTok is Twitter's more millennial and TikTok is more Gen Z. I believe so. Yeah, Twitter's kind of like born of the microblogging era in the late '90s, right? With like Typeform and Blogger and yeah. um, some of these other blogging platforms, and the audience is just aging, and it's more serious. And maybe more sarcastic and snarky. Yeah, serious, cynical, it's professional, and th there are memes on there, and I love, I love all the memes on Twitter. Yeah. But the video culture is not yeah. there on Twitter yet, and that's what I'm excited to see come back for Twitter. So if Elon gave you a call and he said, "Russ, come build Vine," what would you do? <laughs> I think we should expect to see some version of Vine in the Twitter app this year, as in like before the end of the year. Or you yeah, like, yeah, and that's not going to be such a hard thing to do. Yeah, but it's going to be a slow build, right? It's not going to make a huge like revival, and we'll see a lot of like Vine videos appearing in our feeds, and a lot of the old content, and you know, some of the the classics come back. But I'm more excited about okay, like what's the what's the new video culture online yeah. look like? What would the tool be like though if you could have like if you were taking a first pass at it? Obviously you'd iterate it, but based on what you know now, if you were building Vine into the Twitter app, what would it look like? What would it do? I think the bar is set really high for creation tools now. Mm -hmm. And you've got this professional use case mm -hmm. with video that I think separates the casual creator so much from 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 these pros and um i'm excited to see how people that never thought about making videos mm. can be inspired to to take a crack at it mm. i think a lot of the younger population they've seen their their older sister and their older brothers use vine and tiktok and so on so they probably want to get into it and they're open to new tools and new ways to get started. So I think there's, that's a, that's a big opportunity. Like the founder of TikTok, Alex Zhang, I think is his name. He, he once said that like new social networks are like countries. Hmm. And as an immigrant, this like really resonated with hmm. me. Right. And he said, the new country that you found should be really appealing to people in other countries and they should want to immigrate hmm. to your country. And what makes people want to immigrate to a country? Well, new opportunity, mm. right? Freedom, potential for growth mm. and prosperity. And for my family, the USA was that, right? Mm. We, I was born in the USSR and we saw America as like the promised land. So social networks, he said, need to show that early settlers can achieve great success and great prosperity mm. in a short period of time and that'll attract other people to come and immigrate to that country. Hmm. So if Twitter can create Vine as a new place to become famous, to mm. become known for your work by either inspiring a new form of creativity mm. in media, plus giving people access and reach to a big audience yeah. and get really, really big, really, really quickly. It'll be incredibly successful. Yeah, it's interesting because Twitter actually, to me, has more in common with TikTok than Instagram does or than like Facebook does because 
Twitter is a public network that has viral mechanisms built in with retweets and that behavior, whereas Instagram, at least before Reels, was limited to the people you follow. So you can get famous on Twitter without having any followers. Absolutely. And let's not forget how Twitter started as an SMS service mm. for your close friends, right? So the follow model is deeply ingrained in the Twitter DNA. But to me, the opportunity is in just like helping creators find their audience without mm. putting the burden on the audience, on the consumer or the viewer mm. to go and find their favorite creators and follow them and manage this graph of creators. Right. And that's something that TikTok has done incredibly well. Yeah. Just moving away from the the follow model and this follow graph. Paradigm. Yeah, and it's interesting because like algorithms or al algorithmic feeds have gotten a lot of shit, but they're also just better in so many ways. Yeah. Well, they're great because it allows experience to just flow, right? It's like uh, the drawing by MC Escher where the hand is right. drawing Infinite. itself and yeah. is in, in, yeah, where life is just kind of like, you know, unfolding under your feet and you don't have to think about friction and, mm. you know, these kinds of things. But on the other hand, it really diminishes the, it doesn't give the user much credit. Right. You feel like you're a passenger. Yeah. So I'm interested in how can we build tools that don't pry on people's psychological totally. vulnerabilities, but instead appeal to their sense of logic, uh, reason, curiosity, right? How do we give people more agency, yeah. not less? I totally agree because I think, you know, we're, we're witnessing, especially with the rise of AI, these like super tools that with very little intention from the human can produce enormous amounts of work on your behalf. So if you just like a bunch of videos, the YouTube engine, the TikTok engine will start to feed you other things. You're just giving it very little data and it's surfacing back a reflection. And so with these super leveraged tools, they amplify our human instincts enormously. But as humans, we have you know, the human nature, bad parts of human nature or, or, or negative self-defeating parts and illuminating parts. And if you look at the story of civilization over time, we've become more enlightened by, you know, minimizing the damage of the neg negative parts of our human nature and amplifying the positive parts. So think about the enlightenment, right, as a movement in, you know, the 1700s and, and this idea that we're going to use reason and a scientific method. But that also influenced art and the Renaissance. And like, so these things are in conversation, whereas there were moments in history, like the Dark Ages, where it was actually inverted. And when you had moments of war, where we mm -hmm. entertained the worst parts of human nature and yeah. progress slows. So I think it's not a question of algorithmic or not, or technology or not. It's like how you steward it. Yeah. Well, looking at it at that, you know, macro level, you know, what aspects of human nature or behavior do you think are, um, are being stressed now? Like some of the negative parts? No, the good ones. The good ones. <laughs> I'm an optimist, man. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, like, yeah. I don't like thinking about doom and gloom scenarios. I think people are generally good and that we're, getting to a better place yeah, every decade. Things are just much better. I completely agree. I think that technology should 
amplify human creativity. It should am amplify our ability to reason and use logic to assess situations to improve our own lives, our families' lives, our communities' lives, the world. I think that technology should allow us to be more compassionate, more empathetic, understand what the world is like for other people. Like you were talking about, you know, this idea of the umwelt and how we all perceive the world in our own way. Technology can help us build a common notion of that. Technology can help us explore and satisfy curiosity. It can help us, you know, create inspiring ideas, make things that are funny. Like the limits test I use is like, how do you feel after you did the thing, right? If you feel good, that's a positive element of our character and technology should augment those things. If you feel shitty afterwards, that's the thing that we should be minimizing, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, and the, the, the tricky thing is that those negative qualities of our nature, they actually feel good in the moment oftentimes. It feels good when you're binging television or food or whatever. It feels yeah. good sometimes, you know, to be jerk or whatever. But when you have a moment to reflect back, you look back and, and you say, I regret that or that, that wasn't something I liked. Yeah. And I think technology can help us in those ways, help us reduce those regret moments. Yeah. And do you think it's happening actually? <laughs> no, I think the 2010s were, I think that it was growth at all costs for the tech industry led by Facebook. And I think that they didn't really think about what, what aspects of our nature they were amplifying. They were just amplifying it, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And because bad news travels fast and, and for some reason, like the negative parts of our nature like they move quicker and they're more like seductive. I actually think that it biased towards the negative parts. You you need to actually express more intention to amplify the positive parts of our, our nature. And so I think, you know, I think we're entering a new era of it. I think that it's in the culture and the zeitgeist. We're having this conversation, which means that we're on the right track. But, you know, I think about it, my personal journey as a human, like I'm constantly growing and trying to grow. And it would be great if technology helped me do that. So for example, you know, I have a meditation practice, a mindfulness meditation practice. I do it every day. And what it helps me do is it helps me create some distance between the conversation in my mind and the action that I take on that or the judgments that I make based on that. Your mind is in the business of generating thoughts and some of those thoughts are right and some of those thoughts are wrong. Some of them are productive. Some of them are counterproductive. And by, you know, doing mindfulness meditation, you build an awareness for the natural pattern of your mind, but you're not as much of a subject to its whims because you have some discretion on what you do after you have the thought. That's the kind of thing where like technology should really help. Like technology should work in that way. Technology should be like, hey, Joe, like I'm looking at all your Slack messages, all your emails. Like, I recommend that you do this or that. And like, or if we think about it in the creative realm, like I'm viewing so much visual inspiration, whether it's on Instagram, YouTube, like, and I, in my mind can recall some of those things, but not, not in a way that a computer could. Imagine if there was a machine or a program that could synthesize everything I see. And when I have an idea for some thing, it can flip back a visual version of that idea based on everything I've seen. So it's just this sort of like, to me, the best metaphor for technology is like superpowers. And like, if you think about a superhero movie or comic, like the villains and the heroes have super skills. Mm -hmm. They have superpowers. 
But I think that our technology has been too focused on the villainous aspects of of those super skills. And I think the mm. tide is turning. Right. You know, I created a website for my little nephew, nine, mm. 10 years old on Universe. He has a domain, his full name.com. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I pay, what is it? $2 a month, $3 a month for yeah, it? You signed up, I think, when it was, we had a domain subscription that was really cheap. Okay. But we're actually about to introduce that again. Because that's that's like incredibly underpriced yeah <laughs> for the the value that he gets you know he he really feels like uh some sort of validation in the adult world by having that website imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder you'd be like what kind of podcast is this we know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that at Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's universe.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the app store, my friend, and we'll see you out there. Well, I love the point you made about how you started thinking about computers to show your work off. And your work yeah. in the beginning wasn't computer work. Right. And that's actually true for a lot of our creators. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who use Universe, they do things in the real world, right. whether they're making t-shirts or paintings or ceramics. Yeah. And... What I'm trying to do or we're trying to do at Universe is, A, yes, you want a space to show off your work, but because of the way that our tool works, you can start to be creative with the computer and start to make things with it that you didn't think of before. Mm -hmm. And so you're now manifesting your creativity in a new environment. Right, right. Yeah, we saw this in a lot of ways on, on Vine mm -hmm. where people just started experimenting with uh, – we kind of saw it in the inverse. They mm -hmm. started experimenting with the new creation tool and then developed a, you know, a performing arts practice. Right. And sometimes, you know, spectacularly so. Mm. Like Sean Mendez or, you know, who are some of these other big viners? I mean, there, there's like yeah. a handful of them that are that have broken into the mainstream. So the internet can can become the destination for entrepreneurs, mm. but could also be a, you know, launch pad. Right. And that's that's something that I think tools like Universe and Vine totally. can can help people do. For me, it was the PC, right? Right. For new generations, it's a mobile phone and a laptop. Yeah. Well, I think what's cool is that you know we. So, if I were making like the simplest version of Universe, because we have like twenty plus blocks at this point, but if we just had text and images and buttons or links, you could basically make 
most websites. You can't have video on them. You can't embed a SoundCloud. You can't necessarily sell a product directly through that. But the idea that you can have an image on a website is actually like, even if you just had a website builder that was just images and links, you can do so much with that. And one of the reasons is that the landscape of tools for making images has exploded, yeah. even on a phone. So let's say someone wants to make a logo. You don't have to download Photoshop and go to, you know, get a degree in graphic design. You can buy, get a logo making app. And there's like many of them. Right. So you can compose these elements. So now you want to sell your products. So you're, yeah, there's an app like Photo Room that can Super let you, cool. So you know, is there a logo block? There's no logo block. And part of the reason we don't have one is because we haven't needed it yet. There sure. are really good apps that help you make logos. Yeah, yeah. So that's always the question for us is when do we make our own version of the tool right. versus when do we say, you know what, there are actually so many great ones that exist Let, yeah. you know, with an image. They're, they're portable. Well, I think the focus on e-commerce is really smart. If you can create a place where the average person can just make a living on the internet doing whatever they love doing, then you'll be incredibly successful and you could create a massively valuable business. Yeah, I mean, what we realize is that like e-commerce sites are kind of the killer app of websites. Mm -hmm. You can use websites for many different things, millions of things, but e-com stores in various formats are the killer app. Yeah. You know, and so we've leaned into that and it turns out that like for what well, so for websites, right? for websites. Not native apps. For not for native apps. Not for native apps. Well, actually think about it. How many native apps do you use to shop? The only one is probably Amazon. Mm -hmm. Maybe one or two if you have some obscure interest, but the reason for that is that I think think about how many websites you visit a day versus the number of apps you use a day or the number of new apps you download in a day. You know, you might download one new app a month or, you know, if you're more exploratory a week, but on the web, you're experiencing many new sites every single day. And that's because the interaction with the website is so much lighter. It's so much more casual. And the discovery engine is is easily accessible. Yeah. And so what that means to me is that if you are an upstart creator, if you are someone who wants to bring something new into the world, you one, make it as easy as possible for someone to access your thing. Yeah, I I see what you mean. And I'm just kind of jogging my memory of yeah. my use of apps and websites. Yeah. And it's like maybe 10 apps that get 90% of the usage. And then for websites, it is a lot of media, like article links that I happen to land on, plus e-commerce. Yeah. And can we just talk about how shitty e-commerce websites are? They're so bad. Like, why are developers still popping up that 10% for the email address thing? And why are there like 10 different banners across the top of the screen with little X's that I can't? I wish there was like a, you know, the reader view yeah, on for iOS. Shopping. For Yeah. It's a good idea. I would love a reader view. And I think all e-commerce sites should just look like that. Yeah, and should, then yeah. all the flair, the brand, the mm. the storytelling can happen elsewhere yeah. where people are consuming media. But isn't that going directly against what universe is as a tool? Uh, I mean, I, I think... Like, I think I'm here saying that e-commerce sites should look like, <laughs> you know, like black and white catalogs and yeah. lists and grids, whereas you're building a, a tool that lets people be wildly creative. My personal thought on this is that 
you want a, a store to feel like a world because you're entering that person's world, right? And so, you know, you, you build brands. What our creators are doing are building brands. And a brand is as expansive as possible. The reason why people want a website as opposed to doing it on their Instagram is because they have more space to paint their world, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's the idea. We want to give people that space. Separately, though, I like the idea of a reader view because that's just an option that websites should have, yeah. right? You should be able to just see, okay, like, I get it. I'm in the world, but, like, what's the raw information? Yeah. But I think beyond that, you know, we were talking earlier about designing platform as well. Part of the reason why you have shitty e-commerce stores is because the platforms encourage that behavior. Like, we don't have pop-ups. We don't allow for it on our platform, and mm -hmm. we won't. Like, by the way, people request it every so often, but we don't. Well, well how do you handle the, the cookies thing? Well, like, we don't, do you want cookies? we don't, we don't we track. Got, we got chocolate chip. We got. <laughs> I mean, that's such, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I was talking to Ryan, our CTO, the other day about how misguided the like the intention of that legislation was was actually somewhat good which was that you know your experience of the internet is like a surveillance state everywhere mm -hmm. you go you're being tracked yeah and so the EU said look you're going to need if you want to track people you need to tell them but what's ended up happening is instead of people not tracking you they just show you this super heavy-handed banner that says do you want to track cookies no one knows what cookies are yeah. you know so everyone just clicks accept right. i think apple handled this better frankly on their platform where they basically instituted the same thing but it says this app wants to track you do you want to let it track you and yeah. you say no but i think that's part of the wild west of the web no one controls the internet well I, and i think this is how <laughs> just to tie it back to psychedelics hmm. like if a if a e-commerce entrepreneur were to drop acid and then watch someone use their website they would have some profound realizations mm. about how shitty the website is. Mm. And I experience this with my own work all the time. Mm. And, you know, I'm a bit of a control freak and I want everything to be fixed and perfect and done right. And a lot of these things you can't, but there's so many glaring issues that you can gleam just by watching someone use your website. Yeah, You'll feel so bad for the user. Mm. Like, oh, they, they've spent the last like 15 seconds trying to close that button or close that pop-up or scroll around and, and this pop-up and the view and all of a sudden their keyboard just popped up. And now they're trying to navigate the website in the viewport above the keyboard. Mm, and, right. and you just realize, wow, my whole product strategy has been misguided. Like we're focusing on the wrong things. Totally. Can, we, can someone please fix this layer that's overlapping the button? <laughs> yeah. What do you think the psychedelics are doing in that case? Empathy. Mm the realization that one second of somebody's time is just so important mm. because so much is going on in their brain in that one second because they're trying to do something else. But their entire worldhood, their entire umwelt mm. has been hijacked by mm. this like glitch. Mm. And it's glitch after glitch after glitch. I'm sure people are thinking, Russ, what the hell are you talking about with glitches? <laughs> like HQ Trivia is the glitchiest thing in the world, mm. right? And we've struggled with glitches, but it's kind of become, you know, there's kind of like, it's become known for its glitchiness and it's incredibly frustrating, but like there's something a little kind of like nostalgic about it as yeah. well. It's like, yes, glitch it. Like I hate glitches. That's it. <laughs> That's really it. And psychedelics have helped me realize the impact of these little 
points of friction, hmm. especially in software. Yeah, it's like we we you know we talk a lot about bugs, but there's not just like technical bugs. There's UX bugs. Yeah, UX bugs I think are the worst of all. Yeah, because they actually frustrate the user. Technical bugs, people are a bit more forgiving, right? But they just they don't know that the UX bug even exists. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, oh, I just, you know, I have to spend the time to click the thing right. away. People assume it's their fault. Right. Well, they just assume that's the way it is and that's how right. it should be. They they don't attribute that to any decision-making mm. that's happened. Yeah. So the question remains how Mr. Rani Commerce sites and, and, and how that should work and how apps fit into phones and how websites fit into phones yeah. and who's well, actually controlling the experience. To me, the ideal, so I think it's on us to encourage good patterns as a platform designer. And I think we have a lot of room at Universe to do that. But I think that there are parts where you want expressiveness and that's where you should allow it. Like if you think about some of the most memorable stores in the physical world, mm -hmm. you know, like no one adores the Walmart experience. You know, it's this sort of anonymous well, and soulless. Well, I want to stop you right there. When I moved to America in 1989 yeah. and we came, we walked into a supermarket, my mom, my dad, my sister, myself, we were blown away really? by the variety. Uh, yeah. Because coming from the USSR, right. when people were like stealing things off the shelves and yeah. the shelves were empty most of the time, we didn't have any of these like magical packaged right. consumer goods. It was really amazing. So mm. I hear you. I guess the, for me, the question is how expressive do certain things need to be? Yes. Especially when it comes to like transactions. Like I love Apple Pay and checking out with Apple. Totally. And I've spent so many hours in my career figuring out the best input field design system for capturing your shipping address, your billing address, maintaining your credit cards mm. and all these things, designing all the different states, like default, filled in, error states with the red outlines, only to now just say, if you see the Apple Pay button or Google Pay button, just tap that. Totally. <laughs> the like all that, all the other stuff's handled for you. And I love that stuff. So that's you know we we've embraced Apple Pay specifically, but even like one of the things that's consistent across all universe sites is once you hit buy, mm -hmm. the dialogue that shows up, it's just a really clean, well designed cart, etc. And that is not an area where you need to be a designer. Yeah, like yeah. we understand the best practices that are at play there. But the experiential parts, the world, you know, the creators who are using Universe, they're creative mm -hmm. and they don't want an anonymous storefront. If they did, they would go to Amazon. They would go to Etsy even. Yeah. They are on our platform because they want to build a little world. Yeah. And we help them do that, you right, know. Right. So what's the difference between art and design to you? <laughs> okay. That's a pretty good question. I think to me, it's very simple. Art is the practice and the result of just like expression. Hmm. And, you know, there are the categories of art, visual art, music, dance, hmm. vocals, drama, performance, and so on. And design, I think, is a lot more intentful and productive. Functional. And, and functional and closer to... I think technology hmm. than art. So on the one end you have art, the other end you have technology. 
and in the middle you have design. Mm. How do makes you, sense to me, yeah. at least. <laughs> no, I agree. I think the the challenge is that like art means two things. It means painting and sculpture and performance, but it also means this bigger creative act that's mm -hmm. independent from a media type that, that we were talking about earlier, that art yeah. is what you can get away with. Sure, yeah. I don't think it needs to be a really complicated or philosophical definition. Agree. All right? It's just a human thing to mm -hmm. create, to express oneself. And, you know, the you're going to have multiple reasons for doing that, whether it's self-discovery or affecting change or whatever. But it's hard to really criticize art, and I don't think art should be criticized. Mm -hmm. I think people should just allow art to affect culture, influence influence people, inspire people to make other art, which is the exact opposite of what I was taught in art school, right? Like studio painting, you know, super like, it was kind of like a slog of a, of a class. You like come in early, you're there all day painting and you ask yourself like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And then you put your work up and the whole class critiques it and your instructor critiques it. And they say, well, don't, you can't be too close to your, your art because it's going to get torn apart. So you have to like separate the self a little bit from your art. But that's only in when you're in training. And to me, art is like, it's a practice that must be deeply personal. And you have to have a really close personal connection to the work that you do. And I know some designers have a really close connection to their work. There's, it comes from a very personal place. Whereas other designers are a lot more practical and just, well, you know, I'm, I want to build this thing or I have this assignment to make this thing or I have this idea and I'm just curious about it. So I'm going to go and build it and design it. And I think both are totally fine. Right. How would you classify yourself in, in that framework as a designer? I think I'm more of a designer and like I sketch, I draw, I paint yeah. for fun. But like as a designer, do you think about yourself as more of that second bucket of practical or um, self-expressive? I think I'm, I'm a bit more self-expressive because I'm, I'm exploring curiosities. Like I have often asked like, what if this were the experience that someone had when they were using their phone or well, what would it mean if this other thing was true? And then I go and explore that and I design it. And that's where the experiments come mm. from. You start uh, with the question. I start with a question. It's more of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool mm. if... So it's a little like... So the getting away with piece is that. It's like, mm. can, can I hack experience? Can I hack reality? You know, growing up, my parents let me do whatever and take risks. And my sister, on the other hand, she was a lot bit more traditional and didn't so like I was I was given a lot of permission to take risks hmm. and I was in a new place in New York where taking risks was, was rewarded and artists take risks right they're always the painter Rand Ortner once told me that art is one big honesty contest hmm. where it's artists trying to like hmm. find some truth find some source of like realness to express or capture and because the notion and perception of reality is just so 
so varied depending on who you asked. It's like, well, can I, can I punk myself? Can I troll myself and make art and find some deeper truth or, you know, some honesty there. And I think that, that attitude applied to the systems that govern our day-to-day reality and experience is how you get revolutions and transformations and mm. the world of information, media, commerce, healthcare, yeah. travel, whatever. Yeah, we talk a lot about the punk spirit and sort of arming the next generation of punks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, yeah, again, like, Real punk is like Elon, love him or hate him, is a huge punk, right? Like he's, yeah. and he's. Well, I can tell he's just like laughing at everything that's happening right now. It's just so hilarious at every step of the way, like good and bad, <laughs> you know? And I think that's one of the things that really draws me to meme culture hmm. because you can really like pinpoint some kind of farce or hmm. sham and, or like, like a like a wink right and capture it in a in this visual it's all kind of interrelated in my view where's the line for you between like that kind of wink and like cynicism well how do you define cynicism kind of like in the classical sense where everyone is just self-interested and superficial and I think there's like two versions or there's among many, there are two versions of Twitter. There's the meme Twitter Mm -hmm. and then there's the like peanut gallery Twitter that just shit talks everything. (laughs) Okay. That's cynicism in my mind. Yeah. This kind of like everything sucks. Yeah. You have stupid ideas that, you know, like, well, well, you know, the number one type of comment on the internet is a correction. mm. So it's like, Oh, you spelled this wrong in your blog post or actually, so I like to think that the internet or social media has a self-correcting mm. nature, but that's just been proven to be not true in the past like, you know, decade or so. What's happened with social media? But it is self-corrective in the sense that we're that we're having the discourse. It's changing. Yeah. But look, there there aren't just like one or two social media platforms. Mm. There are many. And you see this happening all the time in all industries. Like it's a free market, right? Twitter has become a place where certain ideas fly and others don't. And people that don't agree can create their own factions and create their own networks where they create the norms and the the rules and the patterns for, for their network. And eventually that new network will become problematic for a small cohort of users and they'll decide to go create another one. And I think as long as this remains true, I think we'll continue kind of stumbling our way hmm. to the future, which to me is not cynical. Yeah. It's prosperous. Right. Where do you get inspiration? I'm deeply inspired by like traditional art forms like cinema, hmm. visual art. I also love psychology, philosophy, nature. Do you have creative heroes? Creative heroes, yeah. You know, kind of a cliche answer. Like I love Picasso's career. Yeah. He's just like an artist in every sense of the word, right? Has gone through his different periods where you can like clearly see his evolution as a person, as an artist through his body of work. I think 
um, like Evan Spiegel is just a terrific designer. Like he's always had great sense of what get people excited and saying mm-hmm. like, Ooh, or like, wow. Or like, you know, you can communicate with disappearing messages. You can, yeah. F- like face masks were a thing and like, e- like Eastern European and Russian engineers were making face mm-hmm. masks, face mask apps. And he saw that and mm-hmm. like, he was able to popularize it with Snapchat the stories format, right? Like these are innovations that I think have had tremendous ripple effects. And I really admire his sense of like innovation. Granted, Snapchat as an as a company might not be in the best position now, just given like business problems. But in terms of its impact on the world, in terms of its ability to like innovate and show what's possible with communication and creativity. I think he's done a great job. What other creative heroes? Like certain directors, like film directors. Like who? Like, I just look at the work of Tim Burton, a bit mm. dark. Yeah. And, you know, Wednesday is this great show on Netflix now, but it's like a bit dark, but I, I, I think he's been able to like reinvent classics like, mm. you know, Willy Wonka, Chocolate Factory and so on in ways that are, I think like, some people like the new Willy Wonka better than the old. Like I have a soft spot for the original mm. with Gene Wilder. But cinema in general, I think, is a great analogy for experience design. Totally. I've been reading this great book. It's called Maps of the Mind. It's a collection of drawings or maps of different interpretations by different philosophers and psychologists on how the the mind works and every, every spread is just like a new map hmm. and this like essay that accompanies it really great. And you can pull different insights for how people think about how the mind works to create new ideas and new experiences. I'm just generally interested in the way things work. I'm reading a book called the works, which is all about urban design hmm. and how Manhattan works hmm. from like a, grid layout perspective to how the bridges and tunnels work to how sidewalks work Mm. and red light cameras. There's Mm. so many red light cameras around the city. You know that 20% of them don't actually work. They just produce a flash and somehow- That that I buy that (laughs) because- Yeah. Yeah. So I enjoy learning about how things are built and how things work. So I get a lot of inspiration from, from those areas, but I'm also deeply inspired just by observing people. Hmm. doing things that they do, how people work, how people play, how people communicate, how people express themselves, how people learn. Hmm. And then I ask like, oh, like, can it be done in a different hmm. way? Or can it be done better? Yeah, I, I think I am not a, a classically trained artist. Uh, never went to art school, but I did, I did take some drawing classes and things like this. And the interesting thing about learning how to draw is that it's really as they say, learning how to see. Yeah. And that actually the the putting pen to paper aspect of drawing is the easy part. It's yeah. understanding that form, the way that we visualize form, we bring so much to it because our mind is making meaning out of the thing that we're seeing, mm-hmm. all this symbolic meaning. But if you strip that away and you think about light and shading and form, and then you just let the pen follow that, mm-hmm. it happens. Right. 
so I think what I'm hearing from you is that your practice of creating things is starts with listening yep. and being a really good observer of the world. Right. As it is, as opposed to like the baggage that we inherit about what we think it is. Exactly. Yeah. And reality is really easy to create. Mm. Yeah, there's this concept of ontological design, mm -hmm. which my buddy Jason Silva loves to talk about. And he he made me more aware of this. And it goes like this. So that which we design designs us back. Right. So there's this feedback loop totally. that's happening. And learning this and seeing the world through the perspective of like, wow, like I can create reality. Yeah. And if you give yourself permission mm. to do that, and you're oriented in a kind of a benevolent, noble manner, yeah. you can you can create amazing things yeah, that are really I, good for humanity. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think there's the Marshall McLuhan idea of like, or, or I, I don't know if he said this, but it's like we shape our tools and thereafter they shape us. Yeah, that's the basic so, notion of ontological design. Yeah, and there's yeah. so many things. Like we shape our spaces and thereafter they shape us. We right. shape our media right. and thereafter it shapes us. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the opportunity of creation. It's also high stakes, right? Like you're actually... Yeah, you're actually influencing the world. Yeah, exactly. So before we got started, you were talking about how you draw a distinction between designer and leader and how you see yourself in that. Talk to me a little bit about that. So over the years, I've held many roles in the, you know, the corporate world from individual designer, being hands-on, cranking out PSDs, all the way to like being a leader of a 50 plus person organization. And I've learned over the years that I really don't like building companies and mm. I really like designing UI mm. and crafting experience. And it takes a certain kind of person to do both well. Mm. I haven't achieved that status. Mm. I don't know how it's been for you. How many people is universe now? We're over 60, yeah. Over 60. And do you spend much time doing, like how close to the interface layer are you? Um, we have an amazing design team. Yeah. Um, and so where I'm helpful is if there's some vision context or historical context or something where I have some unique sensibility that's useful. Yeah. I think of myself as primarily like an editor. Yeah. And so the challenge when you're the leader of a company is you can't spend all your time on design. So right. what that means is that the moments that you do spend on it need to be very highly concentrated. Mm -hmm. So it's like getting efficient with it. So for example, I still review all of our work, but it's done not in a meeting necessarily, but someone records a video of themselves yeah. working on it. Yeah. Still get into the figmas, but I can do it, you know, at eight o'clock at night. And then understanding when it's helpful and when it's not, I'm I'm figuring it out. Yeah, you yeah. know, I think for me, I'm interested more so in creating a system that doesn't require my my input in that way. Right. So there's this amazing show that's based on a book. It's on Apple TV called Stillwater, mm -hmm. and it's about a group of kids, siblings that have you know problems like typical kids do, and there's this like magical panda bear hmm. named Stillwater, who's their next door neighbor. And Stillwater offers them advice through storytelling. And one of the stories was about, you know, the kid had a problem with like his brothers and sisters 
messing up his project. Like he was working on his project and his brother and sister wanted to like put their mark on it and he became very upset. So the story that this magical panda bear told the kid is like, well, like there was this, there was this one character that lived, you know, by the beach and she was hired to paint the mural mm. on the boardwalk for all the people to see. And after she painted her beautiful mural, she thought she was done. Somebody came and drew something on it mm. and she became incredibly upset. And then somebody else came and drew something else and said, oh, why don't you put the surfboarders in there? Why don't you add the sand buckets and the sandcastle? And it turned into this like collaborative work which ended up being better yeah. than when she was working on it alone. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of these lessons that I've learned are kind of like maybe things I should have learned in childhood. Mm. But I feel like as an artist or a designer, you feel like, well, this is my design practice. This is my right. project. Um, but you do get better work when you enable people to have their mark on it and I don't yeah you can't always be the editor true because you don't always have the perspective of someone else on your team totally so you know in a way you just incorporate it and it becomes a thing and I know we're talking abstractly here but I'm talking mostly about like companies apps yeah. products and services I think also the early decisions that you make in the design of a thing whether that's an app or a company if you spend the time thinking it through and it's principled, then it inspires work that follows the same grain. Mm -hmm. So for example, like with Universe, we have this grid system at the core. And when the first version of the grid, when I launched it, it was a fixed grid of three by five and elements didn't move on the grid and we only had three blocks. And now the grid does so much more you can, it can be infinite, you, it scrolls, you can move things around, so many blocks, all the stuff, you can layer things. But the, the nature of the grid inspired the way that we did that subsequent work, mm -hmm. which is that it's easy to use, but it's open-ended. Yeah. There are constraints, like we don't give you a freeform canvas. Yeah. That's very emblematic of our approach to design, which is like we impose constraints, like fun, interesting constraints. Right. So I guess your role as a leader is just to make sure that that core DNA and you know those design principles are enforced. I think for me, the role of a leader is to be like a constraint designer, yeah, like a framework designer in that way. Right. You know, to me, like one of the most inspiring, you mentioned it earlier, creations of all time is the New York City grid. Yeah. Just this unbelievable design for a city that allows for infinite creativity by the people, but there's a design. It didn't yeah. happen by accident, it's organized. Right. Right. Okay, but you were saying though, like in your own evolution. You yeah, know, so in my own evolution, yeah. I think if you can find incredibly talented people and I've created a, a network of really great collaborators over the years that I continue to come back to, to work on new projects. If you can do that and grow that community, mm -hmm. grow that team, then you, you can make some truly incredible, yeah. incredible things. But then you see people like a team of two, team of three, yeah. building incredibly viral, super efficient systems. So the question remains, like, do you really need a lot of people, mm. a big team mm. to create big impact? Mm. Long-term, yes, right, mm. for a corporation and their systems in place that, like, will promote and fund 
public companies and public endeavors to do this. But I'm more focused on just like still the zero to one mm. place where you're inventing mm. as you opposed to on, building or growing. Are you working on stuff today? Yeah, I've, I've always have. Mm. Um, since building those AOL hack apps, you know, as a teenager to when I founded Big Human, my design and engineering studio, I've always had a practice of like making gag websites mm. and toy apps and things. And to this day, the team at Big Human is just like incredibly generative with ideas. Now I'm experimenting with, aside for the work I do, like investing mm. in companies like yours and working with founders, I'm still super interested in like games, mm. social media, video. I think there's still so much that's possible with, with our smartphones. A lot of developers and founders have moved on, right? Mm. Whether it's like doing stuff with crypto or AI, I think it's just too soon to build any great apps using those those technologies. And there's just so much that's still viable for yeah. smartphones. And every time Apple releases a new capability with the smartphone, I feel like, well, it's like, it's a buffet, you know, like, what am I going to put on my plate? Mm. What am I going to taste? Whether it's like the nearby proximity sensors with mm. phones or, you know, I love speakers, accelerometers, the haptic feedbacks, the multi-touch screen. GPS is getting much better. All these technologies are just really fun. And like, mm. you know, it's like a plate of food to dig into. What are some of the things that you believed in your early 20s that were right? And what are some of the things that you've changed your mind on or learned that were, were wrong? If you can believe it or not, I was way more cocky when I was in my <laughs> 20s. <laughs> I think some of the things that are still true are like, like I've always been incredibly inspired by soul practitioners, like mm. individuals that create a practice around their, mm. their hobby. You know, whether it's architects, painters, mm. designers, sculptors, inventors. Mm. You know, one of my college professors, Paul Sayre, has a, a design studio, Office of Paul Sayre, where he combines like commercial and personal work mm. into one practice. And I believed in my 20s, like, well, anybody could do this for themselves, especially mm. in New York. When my dad immigrated here, he didn't speak the language, didn't have business connections, so he had to like, create his own shoe repair shop in Jamaica, mm. Queens. So that's always been part of my my understanding of the world. Kind of like an individualist perspective. Mm. Like despite adversity, one can overcome and like create, you know, meaningful change for themselves and, and establish themselves in the world. Um, what else? What did... I started experimenting with psychedelics in my 20s mm. through the psychedelic trance. Right community which you introduced me to psy really? trance really? i didn't know it existed okay I, yeah i learned about it around the same time and i think i just told everybody that i thought would appreciate it <laughs> what was the context in which i is that burning should, man you, oh at you, burning man you were okay. like uh let's go to the side trance let's camp. go to the side trance <laughs> thing and i totally didn't get it i was like i remember that you struggled with it I struggled a bit yeah. and i love electronic music and dj right, and all that right. stuff but you explained it to me as like 
because it's for those that don't know, it, it's very fast music. Yeah, um, it's like 150 plus BPM. Yeah, it's and but what happens is you baseline at that at the rhythm of the of the music, and then there are sort of traveling elements that happen in the music, and then yeah. your mind locks in on those things. Is that basically the? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's incredibly complex, layered electronic music. It's psychedelic. So it's got roots in trance, right? And it's just incredibly stimulating <laughs> and very visual. It's like fractal music, right? Exactly. How did how did we get into? I was asking you about your twenties, thirties, <laughs> like things that have changed, things that that haven't. Yeah, I find more value in being in nature mm. now than I did in my twenties. In my twenties, I lived in a box in a building in Manhattan, right? And I thought like, and I made my my ways out to like Northern California for the Psytrance festivals and I traveled a bit to Europe. But for me, all I needed was just like my computer, my little room and an internet connection. And I found that being close to nature is really a, a component for happiness. Hmm. You know, being close to loved ones. So like my family, my yeah. wife, daughter, like- really, really important. And in my 20s, I wasn't quite there. I yeah. was more just like learning my, my practice, getting really good at doing the thing that I love to do, which is design. And yeah, I wasn't really like into eating mindfully, wasn't really mm -hmm. into physical fitness as much, which is strange because like my dad was a competitive right. bodybuilder right. growing up. And I saw that I grew up around it. But it didn't really take until I was like in my thirties. Hmm. What is your life like now? Like, what? How do you spend your days? Do you have structure, or are they more loose? Yeah, pretty structured. So, I spend my time between Westchester and Manhattan. So I get both modalities. Like I'm in immersed in nature half the time, and the other half the time I'm in like super productive hmm. city vibes. Hmm. I spent a lot of time working on my own apps and experiments with my team at Big Human. Spent a lot of time working with founders like yourself, mm -hmm. advising them on what they're doing, hopefully helping and sharing from my experience and making art. I still do quite a bit of painting and drawing, mm -hmm. paint a lot with my daughter. Hmm. I like uh, ballroom dancing, really? Argentine tango, yeah, salsa. Do you do that? Like, do you I do it? I do it, yeah, regularly. Huh. Like in a class yeah. or in no? a class, yeah, oh. with instructors, yeah. Wow. What it's do fun. you like about it? I just love to dance. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> just feel free. Yeah, it's very expressive. It's fun. Yeah, it's a really great way to get into a flow state. Mm. You ever watch the films of Gaspar Noé? Yeah. What What do you think? Really intense. Yeah. Yeah. What What was uh? I forget the name. Enter of the, the Void. Enter the Void. The titles. Really insane. incredible. I mean, get Gaspar no Noya, he's known for his like super visceral, yeah. very jarring yeah. films. Why do you bring him up? I, I bring him up because he's like to me like the psytrance of movies. <laughs> you know, it's like sure. so stimulating, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so intense. There's there's a dark and gory parts, but like they're psychedelic, they're colorful, there's music and I know, discovering him for me was like a whole, I didn't realize film could do that. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's, right. it's not narrative driven. It's, it's this like, 
experience. Yeah, and usually a frenetic experience. Right. But I think some of his more recent films are more like sensual yeah. and, and and moody. Yeah, he did one called Vortex. Yeah, which was about an old couple in an apartment. Right. Interestingly, that that was like a constraint of COVID. They mm -hmm. needed to be able to shoot it like in an apartment. <laughs> in an apartment. Yeah, I like the work of Terrence Malick. Like mm -hmm. really beautiful wide yeah. shots and like. Like I'm the kind of person that will like, like I will sit and just not move hmm. for two hours in the theater watching a film. It's got to be a good film. Like I walk out of movie theaters yeah. um, sometimes, but you know, I collect trailers. Hmm. I make lists of movies that I want to watch. I have friends that I go to movie theaters with, and yeah, cinema has just been really inspirational for me. Yeah, it's become more and more so for me too. Also, yeah, because it's, you know, it's it's this, it's a world for two hours and every moment is designed yep, yep. to feel something. Yeah. Cinema is kind of a great analogy for, for dreams. Mm. In waking life, you can't really experience the cut or the edit. Mm. Everything is just a single take shot. Wow, yeah. That's great. Um, whereas when you're dreaming, you can cut from one scene to another, just like in the movies. Mm. So you can really author experience by using the cut. Hmm. And I took like a film lit class at LaGuardia and my teacher told me about a student she had at NYU who got into the, the, the film program at NYU by writing one word on their admissions essay. Hmm. The question they had to explore is like, what's the difference between theater and film? And the applicant wrote the cut hmm. or the close up, sorry. The close-up. Right. In theater, you don't get the close-up. But in cinema, you can really cut in to someone's face and emotion and express what the viewer should be feeling. Yeah. Yeah, because in, in theater, the viewer, they have to decide where they want to go. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the players in a theater are less expressive with their mm. face and more expressive with their bodies. Mm. But that's what I love about cinema. Like the the director and the editor can really hone in on what you should be feeling and thinking in the moment. Yeah. Have you watched any amazing movies recently? Um, I don't know if I would call it amazing, but I, I actually saw Don't Worry Darling. Have you seen this? I haven't. It got a lot of negative reviews, but I thought it was actually pretty good. Okay. Like it, Olivia Wilde directed it. It's very trippy. Okay. Um, it's very art directed. And it's about this like mid-century Palm Springs sort of perfect, mm -hmm. uh, you know, white bread, American family kind of town. But then it has a really like sinister 180 flip. But it's cool. And then I was watching her dissect a scene afterwards. I mean, she's like so awesome. And I was very impressed. Cool. Like it's not, it's a bit of like a classic archetype of a film. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it got a little bit of a hard rating. But interestingly, it's one of those films where the the critics' ratings were like a 38 on Rotten Tomatoes, but the audience was like a 78. You know, yeah. So the audience liked it way more than the, the, the professionals, so to got speak. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I'm looking at all your books here. Yeah. We're sitting in a room, just kind of like your library. Yeah. And I love how the books have kind of gotten sun-washed. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. they'll just, all the color will totally. be gone in like a year. Yeah, it's um I just kind of embraced it. I have a lot of beautiful art and design books, but they get hit directly by the sun. 
And I just like to think that you've been collecting this library over the course of like 50 years. Well, actually, this library is probably the thing that's traveled with me, physical thing that traveled with me more than anything. Like I started building this over a decade ago and then I moved to California and it came to California and I moved back to New York and it traveled through three apartments here. And I think actually most of this happened because I was briefly living in a loft in Tribeca that had old windows that weren't UV protected Mm -hmm. and it just sort of stripped the color right off immediately. Yeah. I love that. I love patina on things. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when you can attribute it, you know, like, you know, that. Yeah, exactly. Are there books that resonate with you here? I love the book of symbols. Yeah. I have that book out on like my coffee table and every spread is just another symbol Mm -hmm. and a collection of artworks around that symbol and uh, just an essay. So there are things like the eye Mm. or the heart, death, Mm. you know, water, just like these super simple iconic symbols and just like a great passage Mm. about that symbol. And I love just watching my daughter who's seven years old, just walk up to the book every now Mm. and then, flip it open, you know, just casually browse it. And there might be some stuff in there that's like sex, Maybe not so age appropriate for, mm. you know, for the, I think seven is fine, but I just like letting her casually discover some of these topics that I had, you know, I may not have spoken yeah. about her uh, with. And um, yeah, just like seeing some of these like old ancient artworks mm. representing that symbol. Really love that. I was um, in the, uh, sorry to cut you off, but I, was, I went to the Brooklyn Museum during the, the Thanksgiving holiday and I went to the uh, Egyptian Mm-hmm. sort of wing which is actually really good there yeah and it's just so amazing like the the giant plaques with like hieroglyphics and these amazing drawings with like mm-hmm. you know a lizard head on a human form and it's like <laughs> so crazy thousands of years old yeah yeah i was just at the museum of natural history we checked out their the crystal and gemstone mm-hmm. um they recently reopened that right I think so. I yeah. think it's a reason. Yeah, and it's just like so fun looking at all the beautiful things that yeah. come out of the earth. Yeah, and if you go at a time it's not like super busy, mm. you can actually like enjoy enjoy it. How much is New York for you like a, a muse? How much, you know, does the city itself inspire you? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly inspiring from the people, the mix of people. Like I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, right. Forest Hills, Queens, Manhattan. So being amongst diverse communities is a big part of who I am and how I see the world from many different perspectives. It's the capital of basically like most technological innovation Mm -hmm. in the world. It it doesn't come close to, you know, Silicon Valley where they have much better software Mm -hmm. innovation than we do here. Um, But in terms of just like practical living and serving the needs of, the greatest number of people, it's a great place. But I think over the years I've realized like, yeah, like it might not be, it might not be the best modality and environment for a human mm. when it comes to like living a, a true and fulfilling and authentic mm. life. Um, close friend of mine, Raina, she said that she sees in the future three types of people. One is, is a person that's living in a box like Mm. a cybernetic person. They're living in a Mm. box in the sky. They're plugged into the VR Mm. and getting all of their like needs literally pumped in Mm. via like tubes and wires and screens. 
Another person is the like the classical human who doesn't want any of that. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like just like the naked human with like a toga, mm. you know, walking around. And then there's the the human enhanced, mm. where it's a person that is like distinctly human plus some technological intervention mm. for like even greater meaning or even greater longevity. Mm. So I kind of like, wow, okay. I definitely don't want to live in a box in the sky, which which New York City can kind of feel like, right? Like you can easily just get stuck in a rat race of trying to. If you're plugged in completely to senses of meaning, which are derived by corporations and institutions, then you'll orient your whole life around like, well, I got to go to school, get a college education, pay for, you know, get, get a loan on my education. And then I got to find a mate and then have a wedding and have kids have birthdays and that can only show true love on Valentine's day. And then I, um, Christmas is when I can show love to my family and kindness and for, you know, like everything becomes super commercialized in terms of your day to day. And I think that can happen both in dense cities like New York plus suburban areas in America. So I think it's important to like get out of the city or treat the city as like just a, a playground. Mm. But I don't know. I also see it the other way where like you actually can create community here. You can have a fulfilling life in a dense city if you kind of like block a lot of the the other things going on. Yeah. You need to, uh, I think, good at saying no in New York. Yeah. And realize that there's actually like a billion versions of New York that you mm-hmm. and you can make your own version, yep. but it requires like discipline and intention. I think it's actually good training for the internet in some ways because the internet's like New York in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, absolutely it's stimulating. <laughs> yeah, you never know when like the random person is just gonna like appear. Yeah, <laughs> you know, on, on the scene. Yeah, it's just always about these spontaneous moments would you okay so i think my last question if there's anything else you want to add we talked a lot about the umwelt the sensory experience of life we talked about how you can influence that by making things by being a keen observer of that experience and then intervening and and making some mark and then it reflects back and affects other people's reality and we talked about tools for doing that whether it's you know psychedelics or drawing or design how far would you personally go with it? Like, would, if, if you could put a chip in your brain that would allow you to magnify that umbelt mm-hmm. by, like, orders of magnitude, would you do it? Why or why not? Um, I would say, yeah, if it was safe, absolutely. I think our phones are like a chip mm. in our brain. I think if it's done safely, yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, Ray Kurzweil talks about this all the time, right? Having access to Google or like the super computer or super consciousness yeah. direct to your nervous system. Yeah, like we're, we're kind of going there. And I understand that it's a very controversial thing, but most new radical technologies appear as controversial yeah. things at first. But then once the benefits become apparent they become more widely adopted and yeah it's going to be super weird and risky and expensive and unpredictable and i'm not going to be first in line to get the chip implant but 
I'm certainly not going to fall behind. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I'd frame, frame your answer there is just what you said, I think is a good way of sort of wrapping this up, which is like, would you do this? And your answer is, yeah, why not? I think the why not bit is, I think, emblematic of a lot of things that you've done, that you do, and of your worldview. Yeah. So apply that question to any other technology mm. that humans have adopted over the years. Mm. Would you inject a serum in your body to knock out some, some harmful bacteria? Mm. Why or why not? Would you yeah. put a long, mm. sharp needle in your body and deliver with surgical accuracy a serum? Would you carry around a phone? Mm. Would you eat one food versus another? So this all has to kind of be looked at in context, right? And if you compare a human today, like a modern human today and what we do with our bodies to our bodies compared to what people did hundreds of years ago, it's just like a no-brainer. Like, why wouldn't you do this? Totally. Why wouldn't you eat whole foods right. versus processed foods? Why wouldn't you have the latest vaccines and the latest modern medicine, you know, to prolong a good quality life? Why wouldn't you exercise more? Why wouldn't you wear seatbelts? Mm. <laughs> Why wouldn't you, you know, put a cast on your arm mm. when you break it? Why wouldn't you implant the chip in your it's brain? Right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's progress. <laughs> to, to have more enhanced thoughts. Mm. Cool. Well, Russ, thank you so much. <laughs> that was amazing. And uh, we got to hang out more often. We do. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.univer.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.